It all comes down to the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, it is the greatest news in mankind's history. So is there historical evidence that this event, in fact, is true? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Dr. Zuckerin and I are in the studio today to talk about the evidence for the resurrection. And while you're listening, be sure you go to evidenceandanswers.org because we have many resources, not only on the resurrection of Jesus, but as we like to say, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, interviews with experts, Pat's books, past shows that you may not have heard, and information on getting more involved with Evidence and Answers. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Well, Pat, it's good to be back in the studio with you. I remember when when you and I were teenagers that Josh McDowell was speaking all over the world on college campuses and he said that the resurrection of Jesus is either the greatest fact in human history or the cruelest hoax ever perpetrated on mankind. Well, Kevin, I've got to agree, you know, either this is the greatest event in history that promises eternal life and that everything that Jesus taught is indeed true and the greatest message for mankind has arrived. The Savior, the one who can give eternal life has come or it is indeed perhaps the greatest and cruelest joke that has ever been given unto mankind, giving us a sense of false hope, a false sense of meaning and significance in this universe. And so uh, it would be perhaps the greatest hoax ever pulled off in which millions have lived and died for, for something that was not true. So it is a monumental event, and whether it actually occurred or not is worthy of our study and investigation. You know, Pat, we talk about the resurrection a lot. I know that you do. You lecture and speak on it a lot. But it's really central, isn't it? Right. You know, and as Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then your faith is in vain. You know, our faith would be in vain if this did not indeed take place. Christ prophesied that he would die and resurrect from the grave. The Old Testament, Isaiah 53, prophesied that the Messiah would come and die for the sins of mankind and be resurrected. And so it has monumental implications for us. Pat, I'd like to talk about some of the evidence that you give and the historical evidence is there to support this event. It's not something we just believe on blind faith. The historical grounds are, are quite good and you go over some of those in your talks. Where do we start? Will we start with the uh, the oldest records of the resurrection? Yeah, you know, Kevin, that'd be a great place to start is the Gospels themselves. You know, are they a very accurate historical record and do they present to us an accurate historical record of the life and ministry and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And scholars who have studied the Gospels have realized that it is indeed a very accurate historical document, uh, one of the most scrutinized, but also a gospel that has proven itself to be a very accurate historical work is the Gospel of Luke. Uh, archaeologists have confirmed that Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. And in fact, Luke's accuracy is demonstrated in even his details, such as the titles of government officials. You know, he names Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene in Luke chapter 3, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia in Acts chapter 18, Plubius, the first man of the island in Acts 28. Many thought that Luke was mistaken here or that these titles were invented somehow, but archaeology has discovered that these were indeed historical figures and these are the correct titles 
of officials in these areas. And a real famous story, Dr. William Ramsey sought to discredit the Gospel of Luke and Acts and traveled to the Palestine, Greece area and for years researched that area and the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And he did so with the intent to show the inaccuracies of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. However, after years of research, when it was all over, he concluded this. He states, Luke is a historian of first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And so William Ramsey gave his life to Jesus Christ as a result of the things that he discovered. And archaeologists have discovered that the Gospels are a very accurate historical record. I mean, we could go through hundreds of archaeological discoveries. You know, I'll, I'll just give you a couple examples. Up in Caesarea Maritima in northern Israel, there's a beautiful stadium with a coliseum where they race their chariots and an amphitheater where they did their plays. Just a beautiful stadium that was built there. And in 1961, a plaque was discovered. Now, this stadium was built in the early first century, anywhere from 26 to 37 AD. And a plaque was discovered, and it's called the Pontius Pilate plaque. And there's Greek words that are still on it. And the Greek is very readable there. And this plaque discovered in 1961 states, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, erected a building in dedication to the emperor Tiberius. And so here we have archaeological confirmation that indeed Pontius Pilate was a historical figure. He's a man who sentenced Christ to death. And indeed, he did it during the rule of the emperor Tiberius, as described in the Gospels. Uh, in 1990, in a royal chamber, the ossuary of Caiaphas was discovered, made front pages of Middle East archaeology magazines all over the world. And uh, Caiaphas, as you know, is the high priest in that mock trial sentence, Jesus to death. And so not only do we have archaeological discoveries that confirm the historical accuracies of the Gospels, you know, we also have close to a dozen non-Christian historical sources or what we can call anti-Christian sources, Jewish and Roman. And the reason I would call them anti-Christian is that they despise Christians. And you can see that in their writing. And these non-Christian works affirm many of the events and the individuals named in the Gospels. Now, Pat, the, the archaeological confirmation of the New Testament, that just bolsters the historical trustworthiness of it and the, the accuracy of it. Right. Archaeology shows that what you've got here is a very accurate historical document. And when you have a historical work that is confirmed over and over and over again by hundreds of archaeological discoveries, you can have confidence in its historical accuracy. And when you have non-Christian sources that are antagonistic to your particular belief system as uh, many of these Roman and Jewish works are, that's powerful testimony that your events that you have recorded are indeed historically accurate. You know, in those familiar with law, you know, in court, if your enemy affirms the facts of your account and he has really no reason to do so, enemy attestation is powerful evidence that your account is indeed true. And that's what we have here in these non-Christian sources 
as well as the archaeology here. So we can be very confident that the Gospels are a very accurate historical record that recorded the life of Jesus very accurately. Talk about Dr. Simon Greenleaf, because we hear his name a lot when it comes to the Harvard Law School and the fact that he put Harvard Law on the map. Yes, Kevin, you know, Simon Greenleaf is the founder of the Harvard Law School who wrote the textbook on legal evidence and was converted to Christianity based on his careful examination of the gospel witness from a legal perspective. So he put it under legal scrutiny of what it would go under on a, in a court case in the courts here in the United States. And he concluded that indeed it would pass the scrutiny of uh, the legal standards we have set here. He writes in his book, Copies which had been as universally received and acted upon as the four Gospels would have been received in evidence in any court of justice without the slightest hesitation. And so that's what he concluded as a very highly regarded founder of one of the greatest law schools in our country. Pat, what intrigues so many about the resurrection is that it was predicted in advance. Talk about that. Yes, you know, there's several Old Testament prophecies that talk about the Messiah coming and dying for the sins of the world. And one of the most famous is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 8, we begin, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That term, cut off out of the land of the living, means this suffering servant here, this future Messiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, would be killed stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So his burial is prophesied that he would be condemned with the wicked, yet somehow associated with a rich man in his death. So it talks about the crucifixion, but also the resurrection. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And it says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The Lord shall prosper in his hand. Uh, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So he'll be crucified, yet he'll see his offspring. And so it's talking about a resurrection there. So here's one of the most famous passages that talk about not only the crucifixion of Christ, but the resurrection as well. It's just amazing. You and I had a chance to debate uh, an atheist group called the Rational Response Squad. At the time, they had a high-profile website. They were on uh, Nightline debating Kurt Cameron and Ray Comfort all over YouTube. And you and I had an encounter with them. We brought up the resurrection and the accuracy of the uh, the New Testament. Yeah, I remember that debate. And I remember they said, well, the fact that there's an empty tomb, therefore there's a resurrection. You know, that's not enough evidence to believe this. And you and I pointed out that, you know, they missed the entire context and all the evidence that surrounds the resurrection. I believe that there are several facts that are undisputed that all sides agree upon. Christians, skeptics, and liberal scholars agree upon regarding the resurrection. And the first is that Christ died by means of crucifixion. Uh, that's clearly attested to. The New Testament accounts attest to that. We have non-Christian sources that attest to that. Tacitus, Josephus, the Jewish Talmud, Thallus, and others affirm this fact. In fact, two of the most liberal New Testament scholars 
affirm the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. John Dominic Crossan, the leader of the Jesus Seminar, a man who rejects 80% of the Gospels as historical, but when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ, he states that he, Christ, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Bart Ehrman, a man who denies the historical reliability of the Gospels, denies the resurrection, but when it comes to the crucifixion, Bart Ehrman states this, one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. A famous archaeological discovery made in 1968 of a young Jewish man, his name was still on the ossuary. The man's name was Ben Johann Hagagel. And uh, when they investigated his bones, they found a six-inch nail driven through his ankle. And that six-inch nail was still there. And that is, his upper arms and shoulders were worn down from some kind of abrasion, obviously pulling himself up and down to breathe upon the cross there. And so the first fact that is unanimously agreed upon is that Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Second, that the tomb site was known and was found empty. You know, we have a very interesting archaeological discovery here called the Nazareth Decree. Now, what's interesting about uh, the Nazareth Decree found in 1878 is that it was inscribed with a decree from the Emperor Claudius somewhere about 40 to 50 AD. And it was a decree that no graves should be disturbed or bodies extracted or moved. Now, this type of decree is not uncommon, but the startling fact is that here it says in this decree here, the line reads, the offender shall be sentenced to capital punishment on the charge of violation of a sepulcher. Now, other notices warned of a fine, but death for disturbing graves is very unusual. And a very likely explanation is that Claudius, having heard of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection and the empty tomb of Christ, while investigating the riots in AD 49, decided not to let any such report surface again. So this would make sense in light of the Jewish argument that the body had been stolen, as reported in Matthew 28. So this is early testimony to the strong and persistent belief that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead and that the grave was empty. Third, we have the resurrection appearances. You know, hundreds of individuals claim to have seen the risen Jesus Christ. Fourth, we have the changed lives of the disciples. Remember, the disciples went into hiding after the death of Jesus. However, they were suddenly transformed from men cowering in fear to suddenly boldly preaching the resurrection in the city of Jerusalem, in the very city where Christ was crucified, in the very city where the enemies who had crucified Christ remained and were still in power. What's the most reasonable explanation for this sudden transformation? You know, history shows us people will not die for something they know and can confirm to be a lie. They will not die for something they know is a lie. They will not send their family and their friends and their loved ones to their death for something they know to be a complete lie. So what accounts for this sudden transformation? Fourth, we have a massive Jewish societal transformation. What accounts for thousands of Jews abandoning major tenets of the Jewish faith? You know, for example, one of the Ten Commandments is to rest on the Sabbath and keep it holy. Yet, what accounts for thousands of Jews suddenly worshiping not on Saturday now, the Sabbath, but on a Sunday now? 
Another example, the Jewish temple is central to the Jewish life. It is the most important building there. It's center to all of Jewish life. What accounts for thousands of Jews suddenly abandoning the sacrifices at the temple and worshiping Christ, believing that he fulfilled all the requirements of the law through his sacrifice upon the cross? You know, what is a reasonable cause for this transformation? Fifth, we have the origin of the church who preached the resurrection of Christ from the very beginning. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 3 is an ancient creed that can be dated to within three years of the resurrection. And historical research reveals that legends take two to three generations to develop. But the preaching of the resurrection from the evidence we have from 1 Corinthians 15 shows that the preaching of the resurrection began immediately, not two or three generations later. And finally, we must account for the preaching of the resurrection originating in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the most hostile city where the enemies of the gospel remain and are still in positions of power. So in this city, many of the events surrounding the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ministry of the life of Christ took place. Every opportunity to examine the facts are indeed there. So the message of the resurrection would have never lasted if it were simply legendary as they were preaching it here in Jerusalem. So these are the recognized facts, and we must ask, what is the most reasonable explanation that accounts for these facts? Now, Pat, I don't want anybody to miss this, because you talked about what scholars affirm concerning the fate of Jesus and the events surrounding, you know, his final days and everything. Even liberal scholars, even atheist uh, scholars who study the New Testament, there are certain facts that they affirm. And uh, you can go to evidenceandanswers.org and listen to our interviews with Gary Habermas and some of his speaking, because he has done extensive surveys as to what these historians and scholars affirm about Jesus. Now, you just listed some of those. And so, if I'm hearing you right, Pat, if we put all of these facts together, these ones that are just considered factual by scholars, at a bare minimum, we can conclude that the best explanation is the resurrection? Yeah, that offers the best and most reasonable explanation. Now, there have been numerous other naturalistic responses that have been given, but they've all, you know, failed to account for the evidence that is there. I'm sure there are a lot of naturalistic explanations that have come up. You know, the body was stolen and so on. What are some of these objections? Yes, you know, Kevin, you named the oldest one found in Matthew chapter 28 that the disciples came at night and stole the body. But there are numerous flaws with this explanation. You know, first, if the guards were indeed sleeping, how did they know it was the disciples who stole the body? Second, you've got to ask, you know, how reasonable is this that the disciples could have crept by the guards rolled a two-ton stone up an incline in complete silence without disturbing a guard. And even if they could, history shows us people will not die for what they know to be a complete lie. Now, you know, some people may say, well, haven't people died for what is not true? Yes, but they thought what they were teaching was indeed true. Whereas here, the, the apostles would know this would be a complete lie. And there are too many examples of men crumbling after torture or pressure. History shows us when it comes to sacrificing your life and the life of your loved ones, people will not die for what they know to be a complete lie. 
You know, a second theory is introduced by the skeptic David Hume in the 18th century is that the entire story of Jesus is purely legendary. However, there are too many historical evidences that affirm Jesus was not a legendary figure, but a historical one. And historians have shown legends take two generations to develop. But as we state of 1 Corinthians 15, an ancient creed we can date to within three years of the resurrection, shows us there's clearly not enough time for legends to develop. Plus, you've got the archaeology and you've got the non-Christian historical sources all affirming that Jesus was indeed a historical person. Well, third explanation is the wrong tomb theory introduced by Kursop Lake in the 19th century. And he states that the women went to the tomb early in the morning, the Bible says, before the sun was up and in their emotional state of sorrow, they went to the wrong tomb. And upon seeing it empty, they went and told the disciples who also ran to the wrong tomb. And seeing it empty, the disciples ran into Jerusalem and proclaimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, this theory didn't last very long. There's major flaws in this theory. If the disciples and the women had gone to the wrong tomb and were proclaiming a resurrected Christ, all the opponents of their message would have to do is go to the correct tomb and parade the body down the street, and that would be the end of Christianity. You know, the gospel writers go out of their way to tell you where Jesus was buried. They identify Joseph of Arimathea and state that he was a very prominent member of the Jewish council. Now, that would have been a disaster if they made up such a high-profile character because this fact could be easily verified. So the people knew where Jesus was buried, and if the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, all the authorities would have to do is go to the correct tomb, produce the body, parade it down the streets, and the resurrection message would have never lasted had that tomb not really been empty. A fourth explanation is the swoon theory introduced by theologian Frederick Schleiermacher in the 19th century. The swoon theory. That's right. Yeah, this theory states that Jesus never died on the cross, but went unconscious and he was taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb and the cool, moist air of the tomb helped revive him. He rolled away the two-ton stone, got past the guards and marched several miles to Emmaus where he appeared to his disciples who believed he had risen from the dead and then he lived the rest of his life in obscurity. Well, this theory didn't last very long, although it gained some traction few decades ago, but there's just too many flaws in this explanation. You know, is it possible that Jesus could have survived after receiving the kind of beatings that he took and then hanging on the cross with nails pierced through his hands and feet? And then John records that he was pierced in his side. You know, also the men who crucified Christ were experts in the art of crucifixion. They could easily recognize if a person was dead or if there was still life in that person. And also, according to the Jewish custom, a body is carefully wrapped and anointed with 80 pounds of perfume and spices. So it's very unlikely that the people preparing the body would not notice if Jesus was alive in some way. But even if they all mistakenly thought Jesus was dead, you know, after sustaining such injuries, how likely would it be that after three days in the tomb with no food or water or medical help, how likely would it be for Jesus to regain consciousness, roll away a two-ton stone, somehow get past the guards and walk several miles to Emmaus. And even if he could pull that off, how would he have appeared? He would have appeared as a beaten man in need of some serious medical help, not a glorious risen savior. 
So really, the only alternative explanation that's being used today is this next one called the hallucination theory. And that theory is one that I learned in college and in high school, and it's that the disciples simply hallucinated the resurrection, that they had a warm feeling or a dream or a vision that Jesus had risen from the dead. And in their joy, they ran into the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the message of eternal life. Well, numerous flaws with that one, you know. Psychologists have studied and shown that hallucinations usually happen to people who really want it to be true. And a lot of disciples like Thomas were very skeptical and doubting of the resurrection. Paul is an ardent opponent of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He persecuted the Christians and wanted to stomp out that message. And numerous people don't have the same hallucination. Yet here we have hundreds of people who see the resurrected Jesus Christ. And finally, if the disciples had simply hallucinated the resurrection, all the authorities would have to do is go to the tomb, produce the body, march it down the street, and that's the end of the resurrection message. So these are the five main alternative explanations that have been given over the past couple centuries. Well, Pat, those are the major objections. There are a couple of new ones that have come out. Let's look at that next time because we're out of time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukran. And Pat, we'd also like to hear from you what our Muslim friends think of the resurrection of Jesus. So let's pick it up there next time. We want to thank you for listening, and you can support us when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. Be a part of us and help us stay on this station and keep Pat speaking out all over the world on these important topics. You'll find resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, cultural issues, and topics that we know you'll be interested in at evidenceandanswers.org. Now, if you believe that we ought to know what we believe and why we believe it, then please support us, and you can click the donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. Do it today. It'd be such a blessing to hear from you, and we'll see you next time on part two of Evidence for the Resurrection on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.